Thanks for listening to this show from Aspen Public Radio. Archive podcasts, news, and more are made available thanks to the support of listeners like you. To make a donation of support, log on to aspenpublicradio.org. And thanks. This is First Draft on Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Just with writing, not everything from an interview makes it into the final show. So here are some outtakes from this first draft. My guest is Charles Baxter, author of the short story collection, There's Something I Want You to Do. Well, you've you've taught so many writers and worked with so many writers. Have you found any commonalities between how readers see the world at this point in your life? Well, I think, I mean, to go back to the idea of hypervigilance, I think writers are uh, really good noticers. I don't, I don't know if it was Saul Bellow, though I think it was, who made that remark that writers are, are good noticers. Henry James said that writers are people on whom nothing is lost, though I think he was bragging. I just, I just think that writers often are the ones in the room who are not in the center of the room but are off to the side and are watching everybody. And then the other thing about them, about us, is that we're very careful about language because we've had to be, ever since the time we were kids, we've had to be careful about what we said and how we said it. And words give us a kind of headache in the positive sense. So, yeah, I mean, those two things, just noticing and being very careful about how you say what you say. Earlier, we were talking about a short story that you picked up after 35 years. I am assuming you're a different person after 35 years. How did you get back into it? And did you change a lot from from where, where it was before? It's loyalty, the story loyalty, the opening four or five pages of that story are 35 years old. And I read the story and I thought, oh, I know where this goes now, which I didn't know 35 years ago. You know, I think it's true that we all change as we get older, but there's something in us that does not change, that stays the same. And when I read those pages, I just thought, oh, I I I recognize this. I know this. I I could I can do this. It's odd to say that because we usually think that we change so much down through the years that that we're not the same person. But in that particular case, I think I was except that I was wiser and I knew where the story would go, which I didn't when I first wrote it. So once you knew that that was the kind of book that you wanted to write, did you start each story with a vision of what that request moment is? Or did you start with the title of The Vice or Virtue? While I was writing the first half of the book, I didn't know where I was going or how I was going to get there. But by the time I had finished Forbearance, I had a pretty clear idea of what the book was going to be. And when I was writing The Vices, I didn't always know where or how the request moment would show up. I just knew that I had to feel my way to it. And I trusted the materials enough by that time to know that I could get to it 
without forcing the issue, that just by intuition, it would make itself known. Do you want to talk about any of the other stories? We're kind of nearing the end where we get into the other stuff, but I don't want, I want you to be a satisfied customer. Oh, I'm a, I'm a satisfied customer. No, I, the, the only thing that I would say about some of the other stories is that I've been carrying around some of them for a long time. There's a story called Forbearance uh, that has a dream in it. It's a story about a woman who's a translator. She translates from a difficult language into English. And what happens to her in that story is based on an anecdote I heard almost 35 years ago from Miller Williams, who was a translator and who, by the way, is the father of Lucinda Williams. Uh, So I guess what I'm saying is that some of those stories have been percolating for a long time. Well, one of my questions I wrote down, actually, which I haven't gotten to many of them, but was about dreams and fiction. And since you brought that up, I'm just wondering, because a lot of people maybe in their first fiction class, the teacher will say, whatever you do, don't write a dream. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering about your thoughts about that. Um. I I often say the same thing, and I once went to a workshop that Stanley Elkin was teaching, and there was a dream and a story he was workshopping, and he said, I hate dreams. I hate dreams in fiction. Don't ever put a dream in a fiction. This from a man who kept putting dreams in his own fiction. But then Stanley said something very interesting, which was that he thought that dreams don't lie. And when you put a dream into a story, it usually means that it's the thematic key to the story. And so I, whenever I put a dream into a story, I try to make it so that it's not a clue to what the story's theme is, but has some sort of dramatic purpose in the story. I liked how Africans kept coming up because there's such a big African population in Minnesota. Absolutely. Uh, we have the highest um, number of Somalis outside um, Somalia. Uh, and, um, you know, there's this idea about the city I live in, Minneapolis, that it's populated by uh, Lutheran, Scandinavian Lutherans. And, you know, like other cities, it's much more multicultural than that. Thanks for listening to this show from Aspen Public Radio. Archive podcasts, news, and more are made available thanks to the support of listeners like you. To make a donation of support, log on to aspenpublicradio.org. And thanks.